Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I watched uh, Real Madrid play Atletico Madrid last night and watched Ronaldo score a hat-trick and he was extraordinarily good. I was watching the Minnesota Twins and the baseball game was very boring and I turned it off uh, and then they proceeded to hit six home runs after the third inning. I'm joined this week by Helen Thompson, Aaron Rapport and Chris Brook and we're going to talk about the Conservative Party. I went to dinner last night with the participants in the uh, Gender and the Political Academy conference, the highlight of which was Rowan Williams posing for a photograph with Marsha from Pussy Riot. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no Photoshop, no Photoshop. This week we're also hoping to put out a couple of extra episodes, one with Thomas Piketty, one with Michael Gove for Balance. We'll tell you more about that at the end. The reason we're going to talk about the Tory party today is because of what I've always thought is the deep mystery about the Conservatives, which is how they keep winning. And I'm not trying to be flippant here. It's it's often said that the Conservative Party, which has about a 200-year history, is the most successful election-winning machine ever in Western democracy. It has an incredible record. And when it's put like that, I think it's often because, it's not just me, people think it doesn't look like a ruthless, dynamic election-winning machine. And some of the things that you think you need to just keep churning out wins. Charisma, the the record of successful Tory elections, Baldwin, Heath, Major, maybe May. It's not obvious that charisma is the secret to this. It doesn't look particularly well organised. And it's in contrast with, say, the Blair years. I mean, when Blair, and Blair is the person who seemed to work out how to destroy this monster, how to beat it, but there was no mystery about how Blair did it. You, you pick a young, charismatic person who appeals across party lines. You put behind him a really ruthless machine run by professionals who will do whatever it takes to win. You raise the money, you get the vote out and so on. Maybe the Tories do do all of those things, but and they just do it more secretly. Helen, am I alone in this? I'm not alone in it because you can tell by the way it's often reported. It is the case that when Tories win elections, people are surprised. It's like one of the motifs of British politics. Oh, the Tories won again. Uh, We were a bit like this last time. Is it obvious why they keep winning? And am I just missing something? I think this is an extremely complicated question. It's kind of symbolised by the way that you kind of went backwards and forwards between Tory and Conservative in the way that you were saying that. That's putting it politely. I was also aware that I was um, Uh, struggling to articulate the the question. Well, I don't think it is even that. It's question is, is, well, when do we start thinking about the Conservative Party, and I'm using that name deliberately, as being a successful political party? Because there is a way of saying, look, it's the oldest political party in the world. But if we take it back to its origins, and actually for a long, long time, it wasn't very successful. It was the minority party in British politics. It turns itself into the potentially majority party, and I say potentially for a reason, in the middle of the 1880s. So it starts a period of electoral dominance from the 1886 election that runs for the next 20 years. And then it starts another period of electoral dominance, not quite as dominant, but still fundamentally dominant during the interwar years. And then it has a period from 1979 to 1997. So I think the question is, is why is it then the case that it has these periods in which it, it does, despite the fact that in terms of class terms, you might say it's not at all obvious why it should be the dominant party in British politics. If you go back to the first one, the answer is really in some sense quite simple. It's the Irish question. 
There's a wonderful line that I came across when I was reading something earlier in the week uh, where a Liberal politician in the middle of the 1890s says, it's curious how Irish affairs make toys of us all. Now, clearly it doesn't make toys of the whole electorate. It made toys of some of the Liberal Party um, at the time. But what is striking is, is that the Tory party from the 1886 election was able to use the difficulties that the Liberals had over how to resolve the Irish question to create a much broader national constituency than they'd ever had before. For instance, winning seats in London, which is not something they'd ever been able to do before. So I think the thing that these periods of Tory conservative electoral success have in common is, is at moments of crisis when the opposition really is dividing itself over how to deal with a crisis, the conservatives seem to know what to do. I don't mean in, in the sense of solving the problems, but in being able to govern competently and constructing a national coalition around that. And Chris, is that the story this time then as well? I mean, is, is it Europe makes to- say, toys of that, us all? That's exactly the thought that I had when I saw this line, is that now the EU is making toys of us all. Now, clearly not us all in a literal sense, but a much bigger all than was possible under the politics pre the referendum. I like that way of presenting the issue because I think it helps to deal with two aspects of the problem that in a sense deepen the puzzle with which you began, David. One of them is that point that Helen makes about social class, that the most famous thing ever said by a political scientist about British electoral politics was Peter Poulzer's remark that it's all about class and everything else is embellishment and detail. But that's very puzzling when you think that in a country that in the 20th century had a majority of self-identified working-class voters all the way through, it's the non-working-class party, it's the Conservatives that win elections. If you think about the centrality of social class to voting behaviour, that's a puzzle. And there's also uh, one of the old explanations for why the Tories were supposed to be such a successful party is this idea that they're the natural party of government or that they don't do ideology in the way that other parties do. So they're concerned with pragmatism and the exercise of power and they don't get hung up on what socialism means and so on. But the best historians of the Conservative Party have exploded that. And I'm thinking in particular of the work of the late Ewan Green in his wonderful book, The Crisis of Conservatism, that shows that the Conservative Party has been split by fundamental questions of policy, of strategy that relate to deep ideological issues about what the nation, what the state is going to look like. Green's book focuses on the argument about free trade and imperial preference and tariff reform in the run-up to the First World War. And all of these deepen the puzzle, these kinds of considerations about the success of the Conservative Party. Um, So we do need to look elsewhere. And I think Helen's idea that it is something to do with crisis and the response to crisis, in a way, 1940 is the interesting, not quite counterexample, because the Conservative Party does dominate the wartime government. But 1940 is the moment when, faced with a crisis, the Conservative Party really doesn't know what to do. And that has extraordinary consequences for what follows. So let me offer a more straightforward possible explanation, which is they don't have more supporters among the wider population if it's about class, but they tend to have more money. They have more powerful, better financed backers. And I ask that partly because when we were surprised in 2015, which not all of us were, but some of us were, that once again... It's the old story, you have an election, you have a six-week campaign, and at the end of it, the Conservative Party wins. The podcast we did after the result, we all, I think, agreed we hadn't spent enough time focusing on the basic question, which, Aaron, in American politics, people always focus on, which is who has the most money. It's one of the oddities of British politics that we spend much less time than would be the case with an American election, focusing on the question, who has more to spend? I'm sceptical of that explanation in the British case. Well, I agree that 
The conservatives have more money. The difference between uh, spending in British politics and American politics is the difference between throwing a bullet and shooting it, right? The campaign season in this country is just much shorter, right? It doesn't go on and on and on, which limits the role of money and the, the financial laws. And laws. we'll come on to those in a moment because the conservatives uh, may have broken some now, of them. <laughs> <laughs> we need to be careful what we say. but Do it's... tell. There are ways that money can make a difference amongst the electorate however, right? So if you go back to Anthony Downs and his economic theory of democracy, he simply says, well, engaging in politics as a citizen is costly. You need to inform yourself about the candidates. If you want to be active in party politics, right, that's an opportunity cost. You're not spending that time working to make money. And if you have more resources, if you have more wealth, you are a better place to be both informed and active, politically speaking. So if money does play a role and it favors the conservatives, my guess would be that would be more more in a more mundane sense, right, in that it gives people extra resources to be politically active and informed. And it gives you a sense of, from a psychological perspective, I think it gives you a sense of efficacy, right, the sense that you can make a difference in politics, which is important, we know, for mobilizing people, getting them to turn out to vote. Even this, though, question about money, I still think can be thought about historically going back to 1886, because until that point, the Conservative Party wasn't the party of money. Indeed, quite the contrary, is what's striking about that election is, is that financial interest, and that's why the fact that the Conservatives start winning in London matters in that election, start lining themselves up with the Conservative Party. Previously, they've been Liberal supporters. So even if you want to say, OK, how is it that the Conservative Party came to represent the kinds of material interests British politics that they came to represent, you still need an explanation about how the Conservative Party dislodged, or it's not even dislodged because the period before 1886 is rather backwards and forwards between the Conservative and Liberal parties, but how it turned itself in to that dominant party in British politics. But I still think 130 years is a long time to have been winning at that game. But, but we should think about how the role of money has been changing in politics over time. I mean, through most of the 20th century, the Labour Party is the political arm of the trade union movement and the trade unions bankroll it and the trade unions have huge resources for mobilising the vote, nationwide organisation. That counts for an awful lot. One of the reasons money issues are quite so striking now is that as the role of the unions in the Labour Party has faded over time, the Labour Party has become more like the Conservative Party in being dependent on affluent donors and that's where they're caught in a competition they're very unlikely to win. So um, they clearly won it during the Blair years. But in the absence of a figure like Blair, who's very appealing to wealthy people, and there are good reasons why the Labour Party doesn't naturally slot into the mould of appealing strongly to very wealthy people. That's not what it's for. So other things being equal, you do expect the Conservative Party to win that game. And it does look in this election that we're going through now, the report in the press yesterday suggesting that the Tories have an even greater, and I take Aaron's point that this is still small fry, but an even greater multiple of resources to spend than Labour, which is slightly odd given that we're told the great thing about Labour. So if the Tories are the most successful election winning machine ever, the current Labour Party has more members than any other party in Europe, certainly. And I know some of them maybe haven't given a huge amount to the cause. Is that not a resource that can be tapped in ways that get them out of that difficulty of having to suck up to rich people? Oh, I think it has transformed the finances of the Labour Party. Now, whether it's transformed them in a way that allows it to go toe-to-toe with the Conservative Party over a string of election campaigns, I don't know. But certainly, when in 2016 and 2017, when the Labour Party went through its two leadership elections, while the 
central party machine was in despair at many aspects of the way things were going. They benefited hugely from the influx of cash, especially on that occasion where the National Executive Committee deliberately set the fee for being a registered supporter very high in the hope that they would dissuade people. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people signed on to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. That did Great things for the party's bank balance. I think the question here is, is though, is not whether Labour's got the cash. It's a question about whether they're willing to. The leadership of the Labour Party or the people who are running the Labour Party are willing to spend this cash rather than Earth. husbanding it for whatever comes after Absolutely, the election. Absolutely, because the Labour Party's facing near inevitable defeat. Then why spend a lot of cash? Now you can spend it in order to try to reduce the size of the Conservative majority. That's certainly true, but it's not really clear looking at the Labour leadership and I'm meaning that in a collective sense rather than just Corbyn personally what they are actually trying to achieve in this election. Let's come on to that in a minute just very briefly because I don't think there's much to be gained by a huge amount of speculation here but periodically since the election was called there has been this background drumbeat of suspicion that it was partly caused because the Conservatives were worried about what might come out of the investigation into their potential breach of the expenses rules last time And now there's also starting to be rumours that some decision will be made by the Crown Prosecution Service before the poll this time. Could that make a difference? To say for them the worst case scenario that a group of Conservative MPs or senior figures in the party are charged with offences under this set of laws, would that be a disaster for them? I don't think it would make an enormous difference. I think the possibility of a drawn-out scandal may be one of the reasons May ultimately embraced an early election. But there were lots of reasons why she embraced an early election, and it's like the question of why did Hillary Clinton lose? It's to, to focus excessively on one causal factor seems, in a way, to miss the point. Is it likely to affect the coming general election? I doubt it, because the wheels of criminal justice move quite slowly on these occasions, and if anyone in the National Party is in the firing line, some kind of treasurer figure or other, if there's likely to be any scandal, whoever is concerned will be thrown under a bus very quickly. Again, the Conservative Party is quite efficient at yeah, doing that, that, that kind of thing. That's not a mystery. They are quite yeah. good at that. And they have a friendly media that isn't likely to be able to do much with it. So I think it does feed into a story about how you know, there's still a lot not to like about the Conservative Party, but voters haven't much liked the Conservative Party for a long time, but they vote for them, and or enough of them vote for them. So we can assume there's going to be no equivalent of the Comey letter that's going to be the thing that people rake over for years to well, come. Well, even if there was an equivalent of the Comey letter in terms of its overall impact on the popular vote, right, the Comey letter didn't have to sway that many voters, right? The difference between Clinton and Trump is 70 to 100,000 people in the Midwestern states because of the bizarre institution of the Electoral College, right? Whereas the difference between Corbyn and May is somebody once said the difference between throwing a bullet and shooting it. Oh, wait, that was me 30 seconds ago. Well, it's a bigger gap to close. Point taken. So let's let's um, talk about this slightly more in comparison to with what's going on elsewhere, including in the United States. So there's this historical story that the Tories just look so much more successful consistently over time than any other parties. Other parties have had amazing periods of dominance in particular countries. But the ability of the Tories to keep coming back to keep recovering from splits and other things and to resume their electoral dominance is amazing. But in the present context, it also is striking in comparison with mainstream parties pretty much everywhere, all of which look like they really struggle to command the support of 
big swathes of the voting population, the Tories could win a thumping majority here, which would make them an outlier in contemporary politics. Most elections seem to be quite close these days. Mainstream parties are struggling not to shed votes to populist or nationalist rivals. But is the Tories' position here really not about them? It's about both the quirks of the British electoral system, but also the weakness of their opponents. I mean, you could look at it and just say, faced with a Labour Party led as it currently is, a Liberal Democratic Party recovering from what it's recovering from, UKIP led as it currently is, a popular party in Scotland, but it doesn't stand anywhere else. Anyone would find it relatively easy to hoover up votes. I think we might yeah, have been underestimating to a certain extent the institutional factor of having a first-past-the-post system, which creates two dominant parties, because that really creates high entry costs for new parties to come in, and it makes the idea of abandoning a party, forming a new one, very unappealing for that reason as well. One of the reasons we've been talking about why have the Conservatives been so robust, despite the fact that perhaps they don't seem that impressive or likable as Chris put it, is the deep institutional one of the way that members of Parliament are elected. And it's the same in the US. You don't have parliamentary system, but because it's a first past the post system, exactly. it's the other country where two parties have just kept going forever. I know they change in various ways. And they've changed in various ways. But in the United States, the conservative advantage is even more institutionally based because you do have both the Senate and the Electoral College, which both overrepresent conservative voters in lightly populated states. The way that the Senate is set up right in the Constitution, you could have, for example, just to pick a state at random, Wyoming. Nobody could live in Wyoming, and Wyoming would have two senators. So that would be infinite representation for the... For the zero conservatives. For the zero conservatives or, you know, the, the, uh, the wild, you know, the wildlife. I don't think it's right, though, that the electoral system benefits the conservatives. The electoral system benefits the two main parties, as for the reasons that you said. If you look at the way the electoral systems work, for most of the post-war period, but certainly for the last 30 years, it actually works to the Labour Party's advantage. It makes it easier for Labour to win... Favours the urban over the rural. Yeah, it makes it easier for Labour to win seats with fewer votes than it does the Conservatives. If you remember, one reason why people were sceptical that Conservatives could win a majority in 2015, because all the festologists were saying that actually Conservatives needed to win 42-43% of the vote to win a majority. It turned out that wasn't the case when the Liberal Democrats collapsed. But that was taken as a sort of an accepted fact of British politics, that the Conservatives needed to be seven points ahead of Labour to win a majority. It turned out not to be the case. I think it's more a question in terms of comparisons of the way in which the Conservative Party can adapt. It can keep on assimilating a range of voters into a coalition. They're not always the same voters, but there's not such a big block of voters ultimately under a first-past-the-post electoral system that simply say, we will never vote Conservative. As say, we will never vote Labour. Yeah. I think also thinking about the American analogy... Aaron's emphasised constitutional factors like the Senate and the Electoral College that entrench a certain kind of small-c conservative domination. But even on the level of the electoral system, they are both first-past-the-post systems, but there are interesting differences. In this country, it's very easy to get onto the ballot. It's easy to stand a candidate. You just need to put down a deposit, and if you get more than a certain amount of the vote, you get that back. In America, by contrast, Ballot access is often very difficult indeed. The system is set up to make it very hard to run as third parties or as independent candidates and so on. And that's part of the the great psychodrama about the Democratic Party that, you know, on the one hand it's useless, but on the other hand it would be almost impossible to do anything else. 
the debate that keeps coming round with every presidential uh, cycle. In the United Kingdom, it's a pure kind of electoral system. It's the the first-past-the-post system. Ballot access isn't hard, but nevertheless, it does benefit large parties and it benefits geographically concentrated parties. And of course, in a sense, that's why it isn't benefiting the Labour Party right now, because the Labour Party is no longer competitive in Scotland. So that leads to a question. We've had some questions from people who listen to this podcast, and we're going to try and pick up on these as we go up to the election. And I want to just flag up two that have come to us this week, and one connects directly to that, which is under the British system, it ought to therefore be possible for the opponents of the Conservative Party to come to arrangements in various constituencies to put up one candidate who is the anti-Tory candidate. And the phrase that's now associated with this strategy is the Progressive Alliance. And there are still some hopes that some sort of Progressive Alliance could form in not across the country, but in certain parts of the country, particular constituencies. So I was reading about Bristol West, I think it is, the other day, which is one where the anti-Tory candidate could easily win so long as there's only one because the vote is split between Lib Dems and Labour. It currently has a Labour MP, but that MP is really under threat, so why don't the Greens and the Lib Dems stand down? Do you think that this is realistic? Because it's, it, it is one of the things that comes around again and again in British politics, that given what the first-past-the-post system does to people's vote choices, the key thing, therefore, is to find one candidate so that you don't split your half of the vote? I think there's a lot to be said for bottom-up tactical voting, for voters looking at the range of candidates, deciding who the most plausible anti-Tory candidate is and voting for that one. I think there's almost no mileage in top-down arrangements where the parties come to deals that lead to them standing down in different parts of the country. Parties don't want to do that partly because actually not that many seats would change hands if there were a well-functioning progressive alliance. People radically overstate how devastating it would be for the Conservative Party. Seats like Bristol West are very unusual seats. Self-identified progressive votes are heavily concentrated in a small number of seats, especially in a London university towns, places like this here in Cambridge. Brighton uh, always comes where up. on the whole, this. the Conservatives aren't winning anyway, so it's just a matter of which non-Conservative Party candidate wins. And part of the Progressive Alliance fantasy is this fantasy that everyone is on the same side when push comes to shove, and they aren't, that for the Labour Party to come to a national arrangement with the Lib Dems and the Greens would involve putting its awkward Brexit balancing act under considerable strain. And a lot of strong Remainers would like that to be the case because they hate the Labour's equivocation on the issue. But Labour is caught on the Brexit issue. They can't be a pure party of leave and they can't be a pure party of Remain. And that is also going to paralyse them when it comes to making electoral arrangements with other parties. I think the other aspect of this is is the, the, the progressive coalition I mean, I think it's a fantasy for the reasons that Chris says, but it's also a fantasy because of the role of the SNP in it. I mean, not only did it not work last time, it actually was a crucial reason why the Conservatives ended up winning a majority, because the fear of a progressive coalition that involves the Scottish nationalists, 
under conditions in which Scotland has devolution and there is no arrangements for the governance of England is simply lethal for the opposition parties. And it's very good for the Conservatives. The Conservatives are the only party at the moment who has got a way of articulating something about the English question in British politics. And we've seen two elections, the general election and the referendum in which the English question is quite important to understanding what's going on. And if what you said earlier is right, which is there are more people who are willing to consider voting Conservative than there are people who are willing to consider voting for the other side. I mean, at least the, the electorate may be yeah. more... I think I should have put a caveat in that because obviously the Blair years so we throw a spanner in the work in that argument. But Labour has to have someone who's very much kind of like Blair for that argument not to be true. But there is an underlying assumption there that this is reasonably safe because the Tory vote is close to being maxed out and then, we, as Chris said, we divvy up the rest. But it could drive whole swathes of people into the arms of the Conservatives. It is. I mean, I think that one of the reasons why the Liberal Democrat revival, supposed revival, I should say, is not anywhere near as convincing as much of the media narrative about it as suggested is precisely a version of this issue. And that is, is that the Liberal Democrats in the position that they've taken over Brexit in particular are shutting out a whole swathe of potential voters. They are essentially saying we're not interested in anybody who's voting leave. That means there's an awful lot of constituencies in Britain and England in particular, or England and Wales, I should say, in this case, that they're not interested in. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Aaron, do you, if you look at it, do you think the Tory party is in obviously much better shape than the Republican Party at the moment? I mean, I know these are very different cases, but it looks like the Tories might win a thumping majority, whereas the Republicans, though they won in the last electoral cycle, these were all slightly sort of close-run things, and the Republicans clearly have a problem with how they relate to the person who's currently in the White House. Tories seem amazingly happy to have Theresa May as their leader. Yeah, I would be more confident as a Tory voter than I would be as a Republican voter in the United States. Uh, For the reasons you articulated, there are some already kind of red flags if you're a GOP supporter in the United States. There was a couple of special elections in fairly safe or seemingly safe Republican districts in both Kansas and Georgia, where unknown Democrats, one of them in Kansas, who received basically no backing from the National Party whatsoever financially, did very well, surprisingly well. So that's kind of an early warning sign for the Republicans in terms of retaining control of the House in 2018, though the Senate, I would be very surprised if if that didn't remain Republican. Whereas, yeah, the conservatives in this country seem to be in a much more unassailable position. Are we mistaking what looks like, not taking anything for granted here, but what looks like a very strong Conservative position in this election for what is actually a groundswell of support for Theresa May personally? Because the Tory campaign is clearly focused on her. The the media joke about it is that it's focused on a particular slogan, strong and stable, and she's become this kind of nightmarish, robotic repeater of the same lines over and over again. But none of that takes away from the fact that all the evidence is she is a remarkably popular at the moment politician, probably more popular than the party she leads. And that's right. And the Conservative propaganda is focusing on Theresa May. Uh, It's Theresa May and the Conservatives. Theresa May's name appears in bigger letters than the words Conservative. But also there's another aspect in which the party is de-emphasising itself. It's about Theresa May delivering Brexit, that's to say delivering on the democratic will of the people as expressed in the referendum. That's a kind of populism in the sense that it cuts out the political party. It's about the leader and it's about the people. And the party fades into the background. And that is quite interesting to watch. 
given that what we're used to is the rhythm of party politics, of parliamentary politics, of people voting for MPs, and yes, there are important national leaders like Mrs Thatcher or like Mr Blair, but this is on a different scale, and it's very interesting. Yeah, I think that the May phenomenon is absolutely fascinating in in a number of ways, and I think that there's two different aspects to it. One is about her as a personality and who she is and what she represents in terms of significant swathes of the British electorate. And I keep going back to the sort of the world in which I grew up in, in sort of lower middle class Midlands, and she is the kind of person, it was just inculcated into the culture that you respected. You didn't even have to think about it. You didn't even matter whether you, whether you actually agreed with that or not. It just was sort of a default reaction to what the culture around you was saying. And you respected her for her achievements, for her clarity of vision, for no, her lack of, of pretension? No, it's lack of pretension was certainly part. I don't think it was clarity or, 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 or vision. It's lack of pretension and also a certain matter-of-factness, a certain simply she got on with things without making a fuss... She's not patronising. It didn't matter whether you liked them or not. You just had to respect them without even having to think about it. And I didn't particularly like it, but that's a separate question. The second thing about her, though, is, and I think this is psychologically just quite powerful, is here was someone who, at least in terms of what she says, was a pragmatic Remainer. She was on the losing side of a referendum, and her response to winning the leadership of her party was to say, I take that defeat to mean that I now have to do what the winning side said. I should do. And she's done it without fuss again in a rather matter-of-fact way, go back to the qualities. And in the context in which so many voters have felt alienated from the political class, and it's clearly not the kind of way that either Mr Cameron or Mr Blair would have behaved in the same circumstances, I think that there's something sort of quite psychologically releasing for, for many voters about that, because she was a loser and she is implementing the winner's will. And one of the things I was just going to add to that was I wonder how much of the, the appeal of Theresa May is situational in that it's she's doing both what Helen said she's doing. Um, kind of reminds me of Dickinson, one of the founding fathers who was against independence and yet fought in the Revolutionary War right on the side of the, uh, well, colonists at the time. And the, the, you know, I'm a colonial. And the other thing is, now you have kind of good enemy in the EU. You know, if I'm Theresa May, I can say I'm standing tough against Jean-Claude Juncker, Juncker and uh, the Luxembourg scourge. And I'm, you know, going to stand up to the Iberians who want Gibraltar back and this, that and the other thing. So uh, that creates maybe a little bit of a rally effect that's appealing. Let me put the other question that we've been asked this week, uh, which is, She's a very different political personality from Ed Miliband, but she's adopted some of the things that were part of his manifesto and made his leadership of the Labour Party very distinctive. Most notably, she's campaigning for a price cap um, on the energy firms, but she's also more broadly speaking to her just about managing his squeezed middle, I guess, roughly. I mean, not exactly demographically, but they're talking to the same kind of people. And they are often talking not in the same way, but about the same issues with similar policy prescriptions. So the question was, is Mayism actually just a new version of Milibandism? What point do you become an ism? Isn't there a certain cr- yeah, crucial and, threshold? And I say Milibandism, that's not a thing, obviously, because <laughs> apart from anything else, I think you have to win to become an ism. But uh, that was the question. Um, I think it's a real question. Why are people not more struck by the similarity between the current Tory 
set of policies and what Labour stood on at the last election? I think the politics are very different. There is a similarity of some policy recommendations. And even beyond things like the energy price cap, she muttered some things last year about worker representations on boards and things that, again, chimes in with things Ed Miliband used to say. But the political dynamics are very, very different indeed. What Miliband was trying to do was to hold together a coalition of just enough voters to win a majority in the the first-past-the-post electoral system whose electoral geography, as Helen pointed out earlier, still favoured the Labour Party. This was called the 35% strategy. Yeah, and I would say he he wasn't trying to win a majority, he was trying to deprive the Conservatives of a majority. Or or at least of the ability to form another coalition. But the original plan was basically to try to hold on to everyone who'd voted Labour in 2010 and add to them the lion's share of people who'd voted Lib Dem in 2010 who had disillusioned young people disillusioned over tuition fees and Lib Dem disaffected voters who didn't much like the coalition and could be persuaded that, in fact, Labour was the only progressive party that would oppose the Tories because the Lib Dems had jumped into bed with the Tories. The Miliband policy offer was designed to try to hold together that group of voters with as little leakage as possible. Then in the end, that coalition leaked. Too many votes stayed with the Lib Dems, too many votes were shed to the Greens, some votes were lost directly to the Conservative Party. And some to UKIP. And there was obviously the disaster in Scotland, some to UKIP also. So Miliband was engaged in a kind of holding operation. May's doing something very, very different. It's a very audacious bid for traditional Labour territory. Um, what people sometimes note about her is she and her speechwriters are comfortable talking about the working class. Labour politicians these days often aren't comfortable talking about the working class, partly because so few of them are working class, and to use that old rhetoric of the working class draws attention to that fact. But May is trying to do something else. This is a bid for a kind of electoral dominance, a kind of electoral hegemony. She's trying to park her tanks on Labour lawns. We're going to see the Conservatives targeting large numbers of seats in the North East, in the East West and the East Midlands, campaigning in parts of Yorkshire and Lancashire where they don't normally campaign on a large scale. And this, whether or not they'll win all these seats, it is designed to scare the Labour Party. And that's how I think of these things, rather than this idea that under the skin, May and Miliband might be the same. I pretty much agree. I think that there's one thing to say that the policies are similar, and let's actually, in, in, even in that respect, see what the details of this thing may be, because it may simply be a, a question of like regulating what happens when customers end one tariff system, the standard tariff, or a discounted tariff, and then are moving to a standard um, tariff. So actually, the policy might not actually be the same. But as Chris says, the underlying politics around them are quite different. And also, I think that Theresa May has the ability to talk about, I think the phrase she used was repairing broken consumer markets and not sound like she's being anti-market and not sound like she's being very state interventionist. When Ed Miliband taught that language, it doesn't sound quite the same because he was suspected of being very anti-market in an ideological sense. So you have a space to make a critique of when markets are not working from the centre-right and indeed the centre ground that Marie's trying to occupy, that's much more difficult when people see you as left-wing. And whatever else could be said about Ed Miliband, rightly or wrongly, a significant number of voters saw that as a Labour Party that was to the left of where they were comfortable. And I don't think I've seen anyone, even those people who said, oh, this sounds a bit like Ed Miliband, say of Theresa May, she's a bit left-wing. No. No. And this is exactly right. Uh, And we were talking about this as well with, you know, 
whom you form a coalition with, people will infer your policy preferences from that, your past stated policy preferences and actions, people infer your policy preferences from that. So just what you're saying at the moment is not uh, by any means the only word. And even if voters themselves can't oftentimes maybe articulate their own policy preferences that clearly or give you details on a bill, people do have a tendency to be good at keeping a running tally kind of where politicians have stood in the past. Even if they can't readily recall that from memory and articulate it, right, it's in there. Psychologists have actually found this. They call it an online tally, actually. It has nothing to do with the internet. So yeah, there's less room for for maneuver if you are on the left and want to make a critique that seems centrist. It's going to sound left, whereas if you're on the right, it's it's not going to sound as left and vice versa. That was a lot of different directions in that last sentence. More, much more about Theresa May and the Labour Party in coming weeks. The extras that we're going to do this week, we hope, include a discussion with Thomas Piketty, perhaps the best-known academic economist in the world at the moment, the author of the best-selling book about capitalism and inequality, and a hugely important figure in France and French politics. And he'll be talking to us about the French presidential election, which is coming up this weekend. And we'll be joined by Hugo Drochon. Hugo, Hugo Drochon. (laughs) Michael Gove is also coming to Cambridge, and we're hoping to catch up with him and talk to him about, we'll be limited because of the election, but issues relating to Brexit, expertise in politics and other things besides if you don't subscribe to talking politics please do because then you'll automatically get these extra episodes popping up on your phone as soon as we have released them next week we'll be back in our regular slot talking about the british general election but also we will know who the next french president is and we'll discuss that too my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics Historical tragedies and the people who might have prevented them had they not died 16 years prior. Attempted assassination of King Umberto I of Italy, Martin Van Buren. Um, Hitler invades Poland, Warren Harding. 9-11, Henry Cabot Lodge. Um, The Hindenburg disaster, Frederick Martin, English cricketer. Uh, Introduction of New Coke, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Great Chicago Fire, Charlotte Bronte. (laughs) The Black Death. Some guy in France who almost invented penicillin, but also liked feeding rats. (laughs) Replacement of David Lee Roth with Sammy Hagar in, uh, you know, who those, yeah, yeah, uh, E.M. Forster. Inauguration of Donald Trump. Oddly enough, Morton Downey Jr. And then Death of the Last Living Thing on Earth. Definitely either David Bowie or Prince. So we have <laughs> 16, 15, 15 years now. 15. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. I tried to wink, but I just twitched and so I was like, <laughs> Catherine, don't worry. It's fine. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 